Yeah. It's kind of like in Star Trek when like one of those guys on the red shirts dies when they're on a new planet. It doesn't really do anything except for to show to the viewers that the situation is serious. Yeah. Baptism was yeah. the same way for me. You're just proven that your Christianity is serious. Well, hello and welcome to another organic and locally sourced episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swain along with my colleague Ken Hensley and we are with the Coming Home Network. Uh, Ken, a former Baptist pastor, me, a former just kind of Bible college guy who played in a bunch of random bands that you've never heard of. And we are glad you're along. This is a production of the Coming Home Network. If you're a person who has any interest whatsoever in the Catholic Church, please reach out to us at chnetwork.org. Subscribe to this channel to find all kinds of cool videos. Ken Hensley. Glad to speak to you again. How are you? Good to be with you. All right. So we are back again on the question of baptism. This was not even like on my radar. We baptized at my churches like twice a year. And sometimes it was on Creek. Sometimes it was in a jacuzzi in the old sanctuary. Not on my radar, but I know this is a major tipping point issue for you and your own journey towards the Catholic faith. Yes, it was. And that's why I'm excited to talk about it. Now, we started last week talking about baptism and how what, what we're doing here is we want to look at baptism as an illustration of how Catholicism sees scripture and tradition functioning together to bring us um, a knowledge of the truth. And so um, what I looked at last week, or what I talked about a little bit, I shared my own experience um, with you and how rattled I was when I first began to read the early church fathers, and I listened to the language that they used to talk about baptism. Because for me as an evangelical, baptism was a symbolic washing. Um, There was no miracle involved, uh, definitely, you know, nothing happened. It was basically a way for a new Christian to announce his or her faith in Christ. And it's kind of like in Star Trek when like one of those guys on the red shirts dies when they're on a new planet. It doesn't really do anything except for to show to the viewers that the situation is serious. Baptism yeah, was yeah. the same way for me. You're just proven that your Christianity is serious. Yeah, someone would be baptized because they wanted to testify to their faith in Christ, but it wasn't something that was really um, pushed. It was, But anyway, it was a symbolic washing, and that's what I had in my mind. That's what I'd always thought, and here I am reading the writings of the early church fathers, the earliest teachers of the Christian faith, and they're describing baptism in ways I would never have thought to describe baptism. Um, They said that in baptism, we, quote, obtain the remission of our sins, unquote. In baptism, we are, quote, regenerated, unquote. We are enlightened. We are cleansed of our sins. In baptism, we are set free and admitted to eternal life. We looked at all kinds of passages last week. It rattled me as a Baptist to see just such a disconnect between what the early church believed and what I had always believed. So this experience is where it started for me. Now, during this time, uh, Matt, I began collecting quotations from the early church fathers. This is before the internet, so I'm talking about, you know, working through Jurgen's three volumes, the faith of the early church, and uh, you know, putting little taking your covered yeah, wagon to the bookstore, putting a little piece of paper on all these pages. And anyway, it was at this time that I did something that, looking back, was rather genius. Although I, I didn't plan on it at the time, because 
my wife at this point had no interest in my in my interest in the Catholic faith. I was studying it. She was not interested. In fact, she was really upset because I was a Baptist pastor, and that was my life, and that was my job, my income, everything. But anyway, I was collecting all these quotations, and I gave them to Tina to type up for me. I gave her a bunch of quotations on baptism, and I said, would you type these up for me into a, into a document? And so she started typing them up, and as she's reading the words of the early fathers, she's having an experience similar to the experience that I had reading the early, you know, the words of the early fathers, and that is just being kind of rattled, like, wow, they don't talk about baptism like I think about baptism. And anyway, this all came to a head one night um, in church. It was on a Sunday night after the Sunday evening service. A bunch of us were gathered in the sanctuary, and somehow there was a conversation about baptism happening. And I don't even know what we were talking about. But at a certain point, my wife kind of raises her hand, and she says, well, Polycarp said, and, and she starts blah, 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 basically reciting something from Polycarp. And one of the gentlemen in my church just sort of waved his hand. He said, oh, Polycarp can go fish. And I remember looking over at Tina at that moment, Matt, and just sort of seeing this look in her eyes of... She's the one who looked yeah, like a fish, uh, yeah, right? Yeah, I, <laughs> I could moment. see that she was thinking, you know, Polycarp was a disciple of John. He doesn't care what Polycarp thought about baptism. Well, you know, for the most part, it's kind of embarrassing to say it now, but this is the common response of evangelical Protestants to any appeal that one would make to apostolic or ecclesiastical tradition. It's, it's to say... And I would have made that same appeal. I would have said, C.S. Lewis is ex- extremely important. Polycarp... Yeah, who, who cares? cares? I mean, all that matters is what the Bible says. Chapter and verse, go to the Bible. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that Polycarp is a disciple of John. It doesn't matter if, you know, if Polycarp spent half his life walking around with John and being taught by John. It just doesn't matter what he said. Most evangelicals, and this applied to me, are so wed to the concept of sola scriptura that, as it turns out, they're not even curious about what the church believed in the second century, or the third, or the fourth, or the fifth, or the sixth. Till I got to the academic levels of my theological studies, like the actual academic levels, I didn't know anybody that cared about this stuff, like at all. Mm -hmm. I, Mm -hmm. I always thought that this was only for like the eggheads who are looking for extra tips to throw into yeah, their sermons. And I guess in normal circumstances, it would be the eggheads who would care enough about this. But anyway, that's how I thought too. That, that's how I thought for many years. I mean, who cares about what the early church fathers say? But this was definitely beginning to change for me in my reading. So, so now let's summarize quickly. According to the Catholic way of looking at things, when the, what the apostles wrote down in their letters, they also taught the churches that they founded and, and in much more detail, as we saw, you know, I think last week or the week before, remember Paul was in Ephesus for three years, he says, teaching night and day with tears. So what they wrote, they also taught the churches that they founded. And they commanded those that they had ordained to succeed them in their ministries, as Paul did with Timothy and Second Timothy. He commanded Timothy to hold fast to everything that he had taught him, everything that Timothy had heard him teach, to guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit, and to pass it on to faithful men who would succeed him, Timothy, that is Timothy, in his ministry. And because of this, according to the Catholic way of looking at things, the faith and practice of the church, the early church, what we refer to as tradition, the faith and practice of the church provides an interpretive key, as it were, to the correct understanding of what the apostles wrote. 
You have what they wrote, you have their teaching in the church, you can put them together. It provides an interpretive key. It provides a kind of lens, if you will, um, that could bring the teaching or the things that are being said in the New Testament into focus. And especially is this true when there appears to be near universal consensus on a particular issue. And I could see that this was def- definitely the case when it comes to the doctrine of baptism in the early church. I could see that there was nobody in the early church who viewed baptism the way that I did. Or if they did, they didn't write about it, and there's yeah, no record exactly. of it. Yeah, exactly. So, which was a little bit unnerving, as you say. Well, as you say, both in your case mm-hmm. and in your wife's case, you felt kind of rattled by yeah, that. Yeah, and I, I think you're about what Newman said that time, that, that, if, that if any doctrine as, you know— Basically, if my Baptist doctrine on baptism, and if your doctrine on baptism, if it was held by anyone in the early church, um, it, it's like a flood has come through and washed it away. It just doesn't exist. Poof. Well, yeah. again, just summarizing this, in his classic work, Early Christian Doctrines, the very, very great historian of doctrine, J.N.D. Kelly, after a meticulous examination of the first several centuries of Christian writing, and I mean, he goes through all of it in detail, this is how he summarized his conclusions. Baptism was always held to convey the remission of sins. It was that washing with water, well, excuse me, it was that washing with living water, which alone can cleanse penitence, and which, being a baptism with the Holy Spirit, is to be contrasted with Jewish washings. In his Emergence of the Catholic Tradition, Lutheran historian Yaroslav Pelikan says that according to the early church, This is how he summarizes it. Four basic gifts are given in baptism, according to the early church. The remission of sins, deliverance from death, regeneration, and the bestowal of the Holy Spirit. Ken, you want to know what the four basic characteristics or aspects of baptism were in my traditions growing up? They were you sign up, you get wet, everybody claps, and you change into dry clothes. That's That's basically it. So um, I would would have never talked about baptism. Never, never. Ever. What happened to me, though, Matt, is that I, I'm reading through the fathers and I'm experiencing this. And then I read, you know, Yaroslav Pelikan, I read J.N.D. Kelly. I see what they're saying about it. And with all of this in my mind now, just stunned by the fact that it was just absolutely clear to me that the teaching of the early church in the second century, third, fourth, fifth, in fact, all the way up to the Reformation was different than mine. With this in mind, I, I wanted to almost run, you know, to the other room, pick up my New Testament and began quickly to reread everything in the New Testament dealing with baptism, and and to read it this time in the light of the teaching of the early church. Because I wondered what I would find. I wondered, will I find, I mean, will I conclude that the teaching of the early church is simply flatly contradicted by what's in the New Testament? Um, Will I find, or will I conclude that the early church must have just gone totally astray, universally and immediately, in, in their view of baptism? On the other hand, I wondered, would I see things in the New Testament that maybe I'd never seen before by reading it in the light of the early church's tradition and teaching? And I had that experience too. And when I started reading the Church Fathers, mm-hmm. when I went back, I did something different. I, I used a different approach than I had used before, which would have been, let's look over to the back of the Bible and look for the word baptism and see where it shows up in the scriptures. And that's how we'll study baptism. But when you read the Church Fathers and the way they, they use typology mm-hmm. and the way that they talk about water and spirit, you go back and read and you see things that you're like, whoa, that applies in a way that I would, was not expecting. Yeah, and, had and not this week, um, I mean, in this episode so. and in our episode next week, we're going to run through a lot of those in detail. Okay, today I just want to look at John 3, 3 through 5. Okay, that's where I wanted to begin because I noticed that this was a passage that, that was referred to 
quite often in the early church writings. So let me read the passage, John 3, 3 through 5. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew or born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so here was a passage from the New Testament that a number of early church fathers had assumed was talking about baptism, and yet that I, as a Baptist, insisted had nothing whatsoever to do with baptism. I, as a Nazarene, I, as a free Methodist, I, as a mm-hmm. emergent church guy, this to me meant, even though it does not say it, this to me meant, unless someone prays the sinner's prayer, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's basically how you can boil it down. The Baptist interpretation of this passage essentially went like this. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he's contrasting two births. One of them, our natural birth or our our physical birth, this is the birth with water. This is the interpretation, the Baptist interpretation. He's contrasting that with a second birth, that is a supernatural birth, which is the birth from above, the birth by the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is that in order to enter the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, you need to have been born naturally which is kind of odd because I because that would be um, quite obvious. I but, assume most of us basically Jesus is saying you need to be born naturally, that is physically, that is born of water. And then you also need to be born again uh, supernaturally and that's the baptism by the Holy Spirit. This passage I would have insisted as a Baptist has nothing whatsoever to do with baptism. But as I'm reading Catholic writers now Catholic apologists and theologians, I was encouraged to re-examine Jesus' words, first of all, in the light of the faith and practice of the early church, which we looked at last week and we're going to touch on briefly today, also in the light of their immediate context in John's gospel, something I had never thought about. We'll come to it. And then thirdly, to look at this passage again in the light of what the entire Bible has to say about those words water and spirit. And so this is really interesting stuff. This is great stuff. And I got to say, once I had done this, Matt, it seemed to me highly implausible to think that Jesus could have been talking about anything other than baptism when he told Nicodemus that a man needs to be born of water and of the spirit. And just Mm -hmm. to circle it back around, you and I were both coming from uh, foundations of Sola Scriptura, which meant you pluck a Bible off the shelf. You don't need any tradition or magisterium to help you understand what's in there. Yeah. You just pick, you know, the things that, that really reach out well, to you. Use and a, you use a concordance, you use them. a lexicon. You can use some commentators to, to see what... Listen to a couple you know, preachers you on YouTube. See what, other, you know. what other theologians are saying. Okay, so let's walk through these uh, three. Okay, first of all, John 3, 3 through 5, in the light of the faith and practice of the early church, what we were bouncing off um, our work last week. And again, I want to simply begin by stating that there's no doubt that the doctrine of the church, essentially until the time of the Reformation, was that in baptism, God does some things, okay? God regenerates, he conveys the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, all those things we saw in J.N.D. Kelly and Yaroslav Pelikan, okay? And a number of early church fathers referred to John 3, 3 through 5, in this context, we read a bunch of them last week, but there are more. 
and that we didn't include for the sake of time, and I want to hit you with just a few of them so you can see. Just a few more that are dealing directly with John 3, 3 through 5. First of all, here's one from Cyprian of Carthage, writing around 254 AD. Cyprian says, when, we, when they receive the baptism of the church, then they can finally be fully sanctified and be sons of God, since it is written, except a man be born again of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, just connecting it with John 3. Here's another from a, a work called the Clementine Recognitions from 320 AD. But you will perhaps say, what does the baptism of water contribute to the worship of God? Because when you are regenerated and born again of water and of God, the frailty of your former birth through men is cut off, your physical birth, the frailty of it. And you shall be able to attain salvation, but otherwise it is impossible. For thus has the true prophet testified to us with an oath. Verily I say to you that unless a man is born again of water and of spirit, he shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then one more. This is from Cyril of Jerusalem, writing around 350 AD. When going down into the water, think not only of the element, but look for salvation by the power of the Holy Spirit. For without both, water and spirit, you cannot possibly be made perfect. It is not I that say this, but the Lord Jesus Christ, who has the power in this matter. For he says, except a man be born anew of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so there's no doubt about this. We know what the teaching of the church was, and we can see all these passages where the early fathers connected specifically to John 3. And I don't know, again, once you started to, to see it this way, um, what it did to you, but one of the things that made me realize is how American my form of Christianity was. Because for me, it was all about the intellect and the will. Mm -hmm. It was all about what did I think and what did I feel? It was not about what happened to me through some external source, because I am an individual, right? <laughs> I am a voter, <laughs> right? I'm a citizen. Mm -hmm. I have rights. So therefore, I will determine. My, I also came from a free will background, unlike you and your Calvinist buddies. Um, so the idea that there could be just some external factor that I would submit to besides mm -hmm. just determining for myself that I willed myself to be saved, that was hard for me. It was well, like, really you know, hard for You me. and I both came from traditions that that had no concept of, sac of a sacramental life or, or sacraments. If we had been raised in a conservative Lutheran um, church, that would have been different. Or yeah, we would have had, would have had yeah. a conception, yeah. Or Anglicans, Okay, yes. so first of all, though, okay, looking at John 3, 3 through 5, in the light of the early church. But secondly, what about John 3 through 5 within the literary context of John's gospel itself? Um, how does this help us to understand what Jesus means when he speaks of the need to be born again of water and spirit? And I, I fully admit my embarrassment at this. This is something This is something that really blows me away, what we're going to talk about right now. But something that I had never noticed before, I never even thought about before. There's some stuff in this segment that you're about to do that I didn't know until you oh, yeah. sent me your okay, notes. Okay. Yeah. So, pretty cool. so looking at it's John cool. 3 through 5 now within the context of John, it turns out, first of all, that only about 40 verses before this passage in John 3, we have the baptism of Jesus described. And notice, when Jesus is baptized in water, the Holy Spirit descends on him and remains on him. Okay, I'm reading now from John 1, 32 through 34, and John bore witness 
I saw the spirit descend as a dove upon him. I mean, I saw the spirit descend as a dove from heaven, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, one more thing. In the parallel accounts of Jesus' baptism in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we learn that at the same time Jesus goes into the water, when he's baptized, the Spirit descends on him and a voice is heard from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son. Okay, so in other words, yeah, 40 verses prior to this passage with Nicodemus in John 3, we have Jesus being baptized and there's water, Spirit, and if you will, new life, this pronouncement that this is a son of God. The the exact same three themes that we see in John 3, I mean, John 3, verses 3 through 5, water and spirit to be born again, new life. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, gets his, he opens his public ministry. It's a new phase in his journey here on earth. And you know what's fascinating too? There is no infancy narrative in John. How does John kick off like this whole question of, you know, Jesus being sort of born into the world? He kicks it off with the baptism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's wild. That's how it kicks off. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Again, I had never thought of this connection. Never. It it had crossed my mind. But again, the early church fathers did. St. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the great um, fathers from the East, he speaks of it in his letter to Eunomius, which was written in 382 AD. Listen to this. In the birth by water and the Spirit, Jesus himself led the way in this birth, drawing down upon the water by his own baptism, the Holy Spirit. Okay, Jesus led the way in his baptism through water, drawing down upon himself the Holy Spirit. Quoting again, so that he became the firstborn of those who are spiritually born again and gave the name of brethren to to those who partook in a birth like his own by water and the Spirit. Okay, but there's a lot more. Okay, so that's chapter one of John. Moving forward into John chapter two, it's interesting. Again, okay, this is the story at the wedding feast of Cana, but now we're only about 25 verses prior to the passage in John 3, 3 through 5 about Nicodemus, and we find Jesus performing another miracle in which he transforms water that is used for Jewish ceremonial washings into wine. Okay, so he performs a miracle where by the Holy Spirit, he changes water into wine. Now, in Hebrews 9, verses 9 through 10, these ceremonial washings of the Old Testament are referred to as baptismois, baptisms. In other words, tying this together, in John, in John chapter 1, we see baptism connected. I mean, in John 1, we see water and spirit connected with the baptism of Jesus. And then in John chapter 2, we see water and spirit once again performing a miracle, changing baptismal water into wine. And you don't have to be a very intelligent scripture person to go back and find ritual washing for purification all throughout the Old Testament prescribed over and over, not just in those jars that that would have been. Yeah, and this is what John's baptism was. I I baptize with water, but one will come after me, that whole thing. But Matt, that's not all. We have John chapter 1 relating to baptism and baptism with water and spirit. We have John chapter 2 relating to baptismal water being changed miraculously by the spirit into wine. Now, 
the preceding context then of John 3, 3 through 5 is all about baptism, but so is the succeeding context, because immediately following Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, check out what we read. John 3, verses 22 now. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where they spent some time and baptized. I never saw that and until thing, you put this in my notes today. I never I know, saw it. And the thing that's striking about that, Matt, well, I never saw it until it was pointed out to me, too. The thing that's striking about that, too, to me, is that this is the only place in all four Gospels where Jesus is described as baptize, baptizing. I mean, is it just coincidence that this occurs in John's, in the literary context, John's writing, that it occurs immediately after this discussion with Nicodemus about being born of water and the Spirit? Immediately, the only place in all four Gospels where Jesus is described as baptizing, they go forth and they baptize. Okay, so put this all together then. We looked at the early church fathers and we see what that says. But now, when we look at the literary context of these words of Jesus in John 3, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, we see that these words are literally bracketed before and after. They're completely surrounded, as it were with stories about baptism. I mean, this is the context of Jesus' words to Nicodemus. And so I kind of ask you again, just based on this, is it really probable that when Jesus speaks of the need to be born of water and the Spirit, he's not talking about baptism? He's saying, yeah, you know, Nicodemus, you need to be born the natural way, and then it, once you're alive, you need to be born another way, that is by the Spirit. And, and water. Okay, yeah. but there's more. And and I know this is a part that you love really, uh, that you love quite a bit. Okay, there's more. Because now what we want to do is we want to look at this passage, as it were, the, or the phrase water and spirit, within the broader context of the entire Bible. Um, what, what, what do we learn when we look at the, that the way this phrase water and spirit is used throughout the Bible? And again, I humble myself. If I wasn't sitting here at a microphone, I would fall down on the floor for a moment and lay flat. But this is something, again, that I'd never seen. And so kind of embarrassed because biblical theology was was. And I read thing. the Bible like an hour a day and never saw the stuff that you're about to talk about. I never saw it. And then when, I, when it was pointed out to me, suddenly it was like leaping off the page, the pages of the Bible. And what I'm talking about is this. Literally from page one of our Bible and then all the way through, the same three themes that we saw in John 3, 3 through 5, appear together. That is, the themes of water and spirit producing new life. Water, spirit, new life, being born again. And, and I'm serious when I say that this begins to occur from page from one. From verse of 1. Of the Bible. Well, verse 2. Because yeah. verse 1, because listen to verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. Okay, the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And then, of course, he goes on to say, let the earth bring forth. So it's all about new life. And the point is, beginning with the very first verse of the Bible, beginning with creation, we find these themes. Spirit, water, bringing forth new life and together. As we see in the Church Fathers, being enlightened in baptism, right? The spirit, mm -hmm. water, and life, and light are right there on page one, chapter one. Yeah, that's right. And it, it, it connects with those verses where they talk about it in, enlightenment as one of the gifts yeah. of baptism. Yeah. 
Now, you know, I had I would never have thought of Genesis one verses one and two as typology as a type of baptism. But again, the early church fathers beat us to it. Saint Theophilus of Antioch, writing in one eighty one A.D., listen to what he said. Moreover, those things which were created from the waters were blessed by God, so that this might also be a sign that men would at the at a future time receive repentance and remission of sins through water and the bath of regeneration. This is not a med- I mean, that's it's not a, a medievalist writing in like 1250 AD. This is a guy writing two generations into the life of the church. Yeah, and, and you know what? It's such a beautiful thought because because you know, I don't want to put down I don't want to put down anyone, but when I think that to me baptism was not a huge thing, and then then I look here and I go, wow, the very first verses of the Bible are pointing forward in a typological fashion to the fact that new life one day is, is going to come spiritually through water and the Spirit. Kind of yeah, blows and it mind. opens the door to a thousand other passages that follow that theme. Yeah, because you can just move forward through the Bible. So let's move forward just, just a few chapters now to Genesis chapter 6 through 8 and the story of Noah. Because what we see here is that for a second time, water has come to cover the face of the earth, the flood brought on in the days of Noah. And for a second time, God sends his spirit to cause the waters to recede so that new life can appear. And I'm reading from Genesis 8, verse 2, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Here's the thing that's, that's really interesting and, and enlightening. The Hebrew word that is translated wind here, it's the Hebrew word ruach. And it's the exactly the same word that is translated spirit throughout the Old Testament and in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. So read it that way. Genesis 8, 2 is saying, And God made his spirit to blow over the earth and cause the waters to subside so that new life could appear. And once again, we have water, spirit, and you and don't new have life. to go to the church fathers to see that invoked as an image of baptism. You all, all you have to do is go to First Peter three, when Peter says he he directly invokes that because he says, um, you know, in the days of Noah when the ark was being built, in it only a few people, mm-hmm. eight in all, were saved in through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. And I, yeah, and we're going to dig blind to that. We're going to dig into that completely blind to that verse. Yeah, we're going to dig into that in a little bit of detail next week. But yeah, completely blind, completely blind to it as well. But Peter sees a connection, and he he connects directly the flood with baptism. Um, okay, moving forward again. How about Exodus chapter fourteen and the crossing of the Red Sea? We find these same themes appearing again. And maybe someone's scratching their head, listening, going, "What? What are you talking about?" Okay, but remember the story: the Israelites have left Egypt. They've become trapped between the the armies of the Egyptians, and the Pharaoh, and the Red Sea. Moses stretches forward his staff, and suddenly we read that a wind comes from God. And guess what? Same Hebrew word, ruach, the same word translated spirit. A wind comes from God, and it blows across the waters, dividing them so that the children of Israel can cross over on dry land. Again, we have water. We have the wind, the spirit of God blowing across the water, just like in the story of Noah, just like in Genesis 1 verse 2. And then we have new life. And in this case, new life meaning that before they were slaves, 
the water divides now and they walk through. The Egyptian armies are buried in the water and dead and their new life begins. And it's even more explicit than that because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, St. Paul tells us flat out that this event, this crossing of the Red Sea, was the Israelites' baptism into Moses. This is when they became free. They passed from a life of slavery to a life of freedom. And they did it again when they crossed into the promised land. Oh, yeah. I, I, I even forgot yeah, that. Yeah, it was the same when they crossed the Jordan and the, the waters parted and they went into the, the land that God had promised them. Water, spirit, new life. Yeah, the waters didn't just part accidentally. Uh, obviously, it was, again, the act yeah. of God. Okay, one more that we're going to look at in the Old Testament. Second Kings chapter 5, Naaman the Syrian, which we're going to touch on again next week. Naaman the Syrian has leprosy, and he's instructed to dip himself in the, the Jordan same Jordan River, River that was times. parted when the Israelites came in yeah. to the Promised Land. Yeah, he's instructed to go and dip the same himself, Jordan River the, the Jesus Jordan was baptized. Baptist, which Jesus baptized. Okay, he's instructed to dip himself in the Jordan seven times, and he will come up clean. Now he complains at first that Elijah hasn't given him something more impressive to do. You know, I wish you'd have me do this. I wish you had raised your hand, you know, to heaven and made, you know, stars fall or something like that. But he finally humbles himself to perform this simple, simple act of faith. He goes to the water, he dips himself seven times, and he comes up and his flesh is like the flesh of a newborn A baby. newborn baby. Key yeah. words, right? He is born again. Yeah. New life. Right? Yeah, new life. He, yeah, he's born again. This is Second Kings chapter five. In other words, here's another illustration from the Old Testament where God uses a washing with water as the occasion for performing a miracle in which the Holy Spirit brings new life. Again, and, 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 and again, I got to say, I'd never thought of associating this with baptism, but again, the Holy, I mean, the, the early church fathers did. Here's St. Irenaeus writing in the second century, quote, and Naaman dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, it was not for nothing that Naaman of old, when suffering from leprosy, was purified upon his being baptized, but this served as an indication to us. For as we are lepers in sin, we are made clean by means of the sacred water and the invocation of the Lord from our old transgressions, being spiritually regenerated as newborn babes, even as the Lord has declared, except a man be born again through water and the Spirit. He shall not enter into the kingdom. Quoting directly from John chapter 3. And, and once, once you start again. to see this, you start to see it everywhere in the scriptures. Um, everything from, what about Jonah? Jonah goes down into the waters and comes back up into new life. And that's actually an image Jesus even uses upon himself. And Paul talks about being crucified with Christ, being buried with him, and baptism being a form of death and then coming back out of the waters into new life. So you've got mm -hmm. that. You've got, well, let's go back to Moses, right? How does Moses end up being such a hot shot in Egypt? Because somebody puts him in the water and he gets a new life in that basket, right? Or, oh, yeah, or, yeah. or even when Jesus heals a yeah. blind man and he spits in the dust to make mud and gives that guy a new life. Yeah, he says, go, go and, and wash, wash in the pool, in the pool of, Siloam. of Siloam. And he comes in the, and he comes up seeing. I mean, the Bible is it's everywhere. filled. It's everywhere. It's filled with images. And what we're going to do next week is really fun because we're going to just walk through a bunch of New Testament passages that support this entire theme. But 
but just just starting with what we have so far, you know, um, I was blown away, and I had to ask myself, you know, let, let me put it like this: I had to ask myself, okay, given the testimony of the early Christian writers, those who were closest to the apostles, given the testimony of the church, that is, its faith in the first fifteen hundred years of its existence until Zwingli came along and the Anabaptists came along and they said, no, 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 baptism is purely symbolic and 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 those who are and those who have come to personal faith should be baptized and whatnot. Okay, given the theme, given the theme of baptism literally surrounding that key passage in John 3, 3 through 5, given the fact that when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him and the voice from heaven said, This is my son. I mean, given this recurring biblical theme of water and spirit bringing forth new life, these images all the way through the Bible, what is the probability, I had to ask myself, what is the probability that Jesus' words about being born of water and the spirit had nothing to do with baptism? I'd say that's pretty low. In fact, asked another way, this is a question that came to me, upon what basis would I not accept the teaching of the early fathers on this? I mean, upon what basis? Because it was clear that scripture didn't contradict what they were teaching. In fact, there was all of this support for what they were teaching. So upon what basis would I say, nah, I don't, I don't really care about uh, the testimony of the early fathers. I don't really care about this stuff about the literary context of John. That doesn't prove anything. And, you know, I don't really care about the fact that water and spirit appears all the way through the Bible, bringing forth new life. I mean, could I, would I say that? Could I say that? I mean, that's, that's the question, right? And, and again, this is, we're not bringing this topic up to like pile on people who don't believe like we do. We're bringing it up because for you and I, this was like, first, as we said at the beginning episode of the episode, rattling. Then it was curiosity inducing. And then it was exciting. Uh, yeah. At least for me, uh, I just I felt like, what else have I missed if I've missed this? Because it's everywhere. And when people, uh, you know, wonder about Catholics and scripture and mm -hmm. stuff, and they think, mm -hmm. you know, Catholics don't really care about the Bible. All they care about is like these like smells and bells and rituals. When I discovered this, suddenly I was like, I've had this thing my whole life, and it's been the most important book in my whole life for my for, since I could read. And I have tapped into like 1% of what's in there. Yeah, I had that feeling too. You know, like, whoa, how much more is there that is like this? You know, yeah. how much more is there? Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Now, when I read the story of Naaman the Syrian or something like that, it, I read it in an entirely new way. You know, this beautiful image of him dipping in the Jordan and coming up with new life. And, and like you mentioned, Jesus sending the blind man to the pool of Siloam and him dipping and coming up with, with sight. You know, I mean, baptism just be became something just glowing with beauty and. And, and profundity, really, whereas before it has been like, you know, okay, here's a cool way to show to the congregation that you believe. Yeah, there's a lot more to it than that. And we're going to keep on going on this topic because we've only scratched the surface of the scriptural aspects of this. There's so much more. We haven't even, we barely even talked about St. Paul today. And St. Paul talks about this constantly. Yeah. So, uh, if this is exciting to you, if this has triggered any questions or thoughts from you, please respond in the comments. Please subscribe to our channel uh, to catch uh, older videos, newer videos as they come out. Uh, if you are a person who's got questions about the Catholic take on just about anything, please visit us at chnetwork.org. We would love to hear from you. 
again, chnetwork.org. Any stage of interest in the Catholic Church, even if you want to ask us hard questions, hopefully we'll be able to help you out. In the meantime, I'm Matt Swaim. Thanks, Ken Hensley. And I am not Matt Swaim. And Good to be with you. It's you, you, Because of that, you have a better hair situation than I do. We'll talk to you next week. You too.